Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nicole Ann Morris. Nicole is a member of the faculty at Emory University School of Law. Nicole is a professor in practice and director of the TIGER, which stands for Technological Innovation Generating Economic Results, an innovative partnership between Emory and Georgia Institute of Technology that brings together graduate students in law, business, science, and engineering to work on ways to take innovative ideas from the lab to the marketplace. As a professor in practice, Nicole's areas of expertise include patent law, patent litigation, patent prosecution, IP licensing, and strategy. Prior to joining the Emory faculty, Nicole was a former managing patent counsel at the Coca-Cola Company in Atlanta, Georgia. While at the Coca-Cola Company, Nicole was responsible for the development and implementation of the company's global patent strategy and providing day-to-day advice and counseling to business stakeholders, including freedom to operate and competitive assessments and counseling concerning IP-related agreements. Nicole has over 10 years of experience practicing patent law in large and mid-sized law firms and has represented clients in patent and trademark litigation matters, as well as patent prosecution matters. Nicole also worked as an engineer for six years with 3M and Eli Lilly and has over 20 years of experience working with consumer products and technology commercialization. Nicole is a frequent speaker on patent law topics, including patent prosecution, patent litigation, IP licensing, and the role of corporate counsel in patent transactions. Nicole is also a member of the American Intellectual Property Law Association, the Atlanta IPN of Court, Atlanta Bar Association, Georgia Lawyers for the Arts, where she's a board member, and she also serves as treasurer of the Minority In-House Counsel Association. In 2013, Nicole was awarded the 2013 Rising Star Corporate Counsel Award from the Atlanta Business Chronicle and featured in the August 2013 issue of the Corporate Counsel Magazine. Nicole is licensed to practice before the United States Patent and Trademark Office and is admitted to practice in the states of Georgia, Minnesota, Massachusetts, as well as in the District of Columbia. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much again, Nicole, for taking part in the podcast. It's really great to have you here. And I wanted to start off, you've had a really interesting career. You have been in law firms and previously you were in-house as managing patent counsel at Coca-Cola. And then you decided to switch gears and join the faculty at Emory Law School. Uh, what was that like? And how did you find the adjustment going from being a practicing attorney to academia? Yeah, you know, so the role that I have at Emory um, is unique in the sense that it's one with experiential um, learning and courses. So, and some doctrinal courses, but the program is mainly an experiential learning course. So I think it works well to have the private 
practice and industry experience in this role. And in particular, um, I was just fortunate with the timing because the woman who was the director prior to my arrival was uh, retiring. So the positions in academia are similar to roles in-house, whereas they don't come up sort of frequently like you will see at a law firm. Um, And when they do, you know, appear, they sort of close quickly like a vacuum. So so the timing just worked out. So what surprised you the most about the adjustment from being a practicing attorney to to being a law professor? Um, I don't know if I had a ton of surprises. You know, in academia, you're looking at interesting questions, right? You're writing about issues that are at the intersection or some comparative issue in the law or issues that don't have simple answers. So the complexity of the legal problem is what is really driving the motivation for the research and the scholarship. Um, Whereas in practice, whether it's in-house or at a law firm, you know, your work is very much the demand on the client, right? So the client comes to you with their legal problem and you're trying to fix it. You're trying to, you know, address whatever issues um, that they've presented. Uh, On the in-house side, you're helping the business. So it's all about business decisions. Should we sign this contract? We need a contract. We we need to negotiate a deal. Um, we're trying to avoid a lawsuit or we're in the litigation and we're trying to have a successful outcome. You don't have those, uh, obviously, in academia. So it's um, it's like the pre-work almost to your uh, career and you're able to devote more time to these really interesting issues, whereas definitely in-house, you're juggling so much that you've got to work more efficiently and use more judgment in terms of, I don't have time to research this for 20 hours. I need to figure out something in 30 minutes. Um, so it's just a different pace and cadence. Uh, but the, you know, the questions are still quite interesting. I think I miss having some level of camaraderie around issues with, you know, whether it's the law department or the practice group, um, we don't do that generally as faculty. Everyone has their own area of expertise. So those are the big differences. And what courses do you teach at Emory? So I teach within the Tiger program and the course structure there is Fundamentals of Innovation. So it's really a multidisciplinary course. We talk about intellectual property. We talk about some like a mini MBA kind of issues And then I also teach doctrinal courses within the law school, mainly on the IP spectrum. So I've taught patent litigation, patent law. This semester, I'm also teaching IP survey. Now, that's a good segue. You're the director of the TIGER program. And for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the program, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yep. So the program actually was started in around 2002 based off of the NSF grant and the grant PI. was a woman at Georgia Tech, uh, Marie Thursby. And she put in a proposal for a multidisciplinary sort of academic program that brought together graduate students. So professional students in law and business and PhD students. And they would work together in a team environment, again, through a course structure, looking at university technology and trying to create a business opportunity from that. So 
the program's first graduates finished out of the law school around 2004, and we've been sort of going strong ever since. The mechanics of the program have changed over time, and I think we started as a two-full-year program and reduced it to somewhere between 12 to 18 months. But other than that, you still have teams of students working together, looking at core technology. Usually it's the thesis of the PhD candidate is the basis of the technology for the team. So, Nicole, you you mentioned generally a little bit about how um, Tiger works. Can you tell us functionally in a little bit more detail how the program operates? Sure. So students are um, in their second or third year of law school to participate. Um, They'll apply as a 1L or as a 2L at Emory Law. And on the business side, they have completed one semester of their MBA program, and then they are admitted to the to the program. So the course, Fundamentals of Innovation, um, meets once a week, and that's where we're able, usually it's in the late afternoon or evenings, that's where we're able to get all the students together because they've taken their other core uh, courses out of law or out of business, and that's the time of the day that's most unique. And we structure the lecture content around sort of the modules that they need to know um, for getting going and getting started with their research. We'll have guest speakers come in to support the sort of core curriculum courses. We'll have um, librarians from the business library or the law um, patent searching library function to help them understand what they need to do, what databases they can access for their research. We'll sometimes have some speakers as former technology founders and graduates of Tiger come just talk about their experience, what they gained from it, what the team environment was like. Um, For the law students, working in a team in a course is usually their first time doing that. Law is not a team sport type of experience. So just getting used to having to rely on others for uh, course deliverables, work product deliverables is definitely a new experience for the law students. And we also give them time during that week to meet with their teammates. So they're able to sort of get work done outside of the classroom setting. Um, And the courses I mentioned, it's a one-year commitment. So at the end of the first year for the law students, there's a capstone course that they have an option to take, which is taught like an entrepreneurship law class. I teach that course. And I've also included in the last few years, a lot of the legal tech um, sort of modules so they can get educated about what's happening in particularly entrepreneurial wise uh, within the legal industry. So it works really well. So where do you get the ideas that form the basis of the projects that these students work on? So the PhD students obviously have a thesis that they're working on. Um, That is the project. That is the idea. So um, this semester, we've got PhD students working on some version of an AI algorithm to solve some community needs and issues. So the students are looking at that to determine what the market size is, what the industry that you would um, potentially commercialize this technology. And you're looking at it from the legal IP assessment of um, competitive advantage, freedom to operate, patentability, um, if there are some licensing opportunities once you're sort of 
it's, it's somewhat forward thinking because you're not actually a startup or a company, but if you were, who would your licensing targets be, your first um, customer targets? And we do a lot of that scoping in the first semester. So that's where the idea comes from. It's the PhD thesis of the student on the team. Interesting. And so how many students are there that participate in Tiger per year? It varies. So um, this year we have a total of about 88 students when you factor in MBA, PhD, and JD students. Um, Each year from the law school, we'll have somewhere between 22 to 30 students. Um, I try to cap the law student sort of size at about 30 because I think it gets really out of bound when you've got like a, you know, 150 person kind of experience where you're not able to really have as much closer touch points with the faculty. And we don't know, you know, from day to day, we're like juggling all these different projects. But um, generally speaking, we'll have somewhere between like 10 to about 12, 14 projects, project teams. So how do you decide which students go on what team or do they get to kind of volunteer for what team they want to Beyond, for example, you know, I might be a, a student might be a life science kind of person, a life science background, and you just mentioned an AI project. So do you kind of match, you know, people's technical backgrounds with, you know, PhD students? So we started with a self-formation model where the students would interact with the PhD. The PhD students would do a short presentation, like a short pitch of their technology, and then everyone would kind of scramble to figure out who they wanted to work on. Um, I do a hybrid of that now. I think part of the, it was forced due to COVID, right? So we're not having the in-person networking and meetings and things in class and after class. Um, And it takes longer for the teams to form if you're trying to get everyone like comfortable and uh, an opportunity to meet and learn more about the technologies, visit the lab. So Due to COVID, we we had to pivot in terms of how the teams were structured and formed. And this year, um, I selected or or placed students in teams. I will give the JDs an opportunity to review all of the descriptions of the project so they can somewhat self-select or at least give me um, uh, a notice about what group or PhD they would prefer to work on. A lot of it for them is... um, Obviously, they have experience in that industry. So if it's something signaling to area, um, uh, the automobile industry, or we have a student who um, has a uh, mechanical aerospace kind of background and somebody's doing something in aerospace this year. So I try to allow them to have a chance to select technologies they most would be comfortable with. But like the practice, you know, you don't necessarily pick your client's business and decide I'm only going to work with exactly clients. So I also let them know if they're not either able to get their first choice or they're unsure. And I just sort of select and select a team for them that it mimics their, you know, soon to be future uh, practice life where you're just going to get a legal issue and you're not going to be able to dictate the business or industry that your client's in. So I think it helps to have some comfort level, but it also makes them a, a little bit more biased in terms of how they approach the problem solving. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. 
Yeah, that that makes sense. Now, I'm assuming that most of these students are two L's and three L's, right? It It's one L's yes. need to just focus on uh, first year of law school type of thing. Yes. You're not allowed to participate as a one L. Yeah, I was going to say it would be too. I think it would just be too much for a one L. So so then do the law students stick strictly with the legal issues? I'm assuming that they all kind of bleed into one another and they work on all the issues together because there might be a technical issue. You need the PhD student to maybe help on a freedom to operate issue. Um, so they all kind of, like you said before, work together and learn to work together as a group to solve these various issues. Yeah. So, you know, we encourage them to think of their professional or, or, or their degree programs as the subject matter expert for problem solving. So, Exactly. With a freedom to operate a patentability assessment, you have to talk with your PhD teammate to understand keywords, to understand what's really critical with that particular um, technology and their focus. You know, there are very few um, thesis sort of uh, themes that are like brand new to the world. So it could be a really crowded prior art field and you have to discern how the, you know, how this technology differs from what they're finding in, you know, in the public domain and in their research. Um, the business students take the lead on a lot of the market analysis. But some of our JD students either have MBA degrees or prior business um, undergraduate degrees and experience. So I also encourage them to look at some of the industry and market analysis work because they can actually inform really well and differently from their MBA teammate, you know, the MBA teammate might have like a very technical focus and they're looking at, you know, post, you know, secondary research sources and the data in terms of the finance valuation or something really um, detail oriented within that business structure. Whereas the law student can take much more of a macro view and think about it from both the business, but the legal pressures, right? So if there's some antitrust or investigation or some regulatory hurdle or something else, they can inform on the business question, but just from a different perspective. So I think it helps if they're able to do more than one. And sometimes it's dictated by the structure of the team anyway. If there's really no intellectual property issues or very few, then it opens them up to look at other other things to research. So Nicole, based on your experience, what do law students who apply for this program hope to get out of it? Or what do you think their motivation is for wanting to participate in the program? You know, they all come from different motivations. I, You know, what I will say when I think about my experience in law school and, and where legal education is today, it's really competitive for today's students in terms of the job market. So I, I feel that pressure as I'm, so I interview most of the students when they apply just to get a sense of them. And, you know, as we're talking and doing this podcast, a lot of the Tiger experience is about communication. So can you not just communicate with your JD teammate, but can you communicate with the PhD student? Can yeah. you communicate with the business students? Can you communicate in terms of class presentation? So it's such a critical interpersonal skill. Um, I look for that in the interview, but when I talk with them, I, I feel their anxiety and I get the sense that they're trying to dif differentiate themselves um, and applying the tiger is one way that they can do that. I think some students 
particularly ones who have prior work experience and then go back for their law degree, see it as a beneficial career enhancer because you're working in a team environment, you're solving real world sort of technical problems because it's a real thesis, you know, it's a real uh, academic research project. It's not a hypothetical. So the the experiential learning um, benefits uh, go beyond hypothetical kind of what would happen if the client said X. It's like, no, the client's right there. You can pick up the phone and call them. Um, so I think for students who see that, who, you know, their maturity is enough that they can see that as a, a win for them um, in terms of their law school experience, uh, they're attracted to the program. I get a lot of engineers, which is great. Um, because it's a nice way for them to apply their engineering knowledge, talk with a PhD person, sort of nerd out for a little bit in terms of the technology. Um, and that's fun because they do enjoy that part. Um, they all have different motivations. Um, and, you know, trying to make sure, because it's, it's a definite time commitment, not just the once a week, but the meetings with their teammates and outside of classroom activities. I want to make sure that it's a win-win for what they want to do ultimately with their law degree and what we can capture in the semester, two-semester experience. It must be really neat for you to watch them grow and work together and collaborate over time. It must just be really interesting to watch for you. Uh, What's your thought about that? Yeah, it is. You know, it's each year I... I'm surprised a little bit by um, a lot of the engineering students are, I would say, more introverted in their nature, right? I can just, each year I'm surprised how much more comfortable they are um, having gone to Tiger in terms of public speaking or just presenting ideas, um, uh, advocating for for things in a different way. I think the peer-to-peer learning part of Tiger is definitely probably be the biggest advantage of the program because sitting in a classroom with a PhD student and a business student, they think differently to the law students, right? The learning is very different and you're absorbing a new way of thinking about problem solving. um, that's not really written into the script of the curriculum. So I have found it really a joy to watch people mature and become much more comfortable with their problem solving skills um, as they go through the program. And then there are folks who are a little bit more inflexible to the process. And, you know, they have this strong engineering background. Usually it's my engineers who are (laughs) possibly learning resistant ones. Um, And they they just want to focus on the tech. They are frustrated by the business learning and business content and, it's like, it's really all, it's all, if you just lean into it, you can embrace all of these other um, skills and learnings that you're not getting in the doctrinal classes that you're taking. So, you know, there's always one or two students who kind of like going through a car wash, they don't get wet. Um, and then they're, most of them are, are very much, you know, embracing all of the different ways of learning and the different ways of thinking about uh, legal problems. And I think what's really great about this program, too, is it's giving 
these students um, some skills that they may not get in traditional law school classes. They're getting, you know, communication, learning to communicate with the client, working with teams. Um, Are there other things that you see that the program gives them that they wouldn't get in a traditional law school type of class? I would say the the other big piece is the writing. So um, the writing is different, right? So it's much more business style writing, you know, executive summaries, um, progress reports where you're looking at reporting out where you are and planning ahead in terms of like more like project planning kind of skills. So the project planning, project report, and then the, the end of semester deliverables, usually it's a presentation of some sort. So they have to give a PowerPoint, you know, produce a PowerPoint deck um, and produce a written report of where they see, you know, their technology and what they've researched and what they've learned and what, what they want to continue working on in the future. So all of that writing involves some legal analysis, right? So here's the issue, here's our thoughts on where we can go with it. Um, It's still not clear. There's lots of uncertainty because the technology is so early stage. Uh, So dealing with uncertainty and having to put that into some written form on providing either recommendations or an assessment of where you are um, is I think the biggest strength for, uh, or one of the biggest sort of additional benefits to the program. Now, Nicole, you mentioned this is a pretty large program. You mentioned about 88 students going through it now, and you mentioned about bringing guest speakers and patent searchers and librarians and things like that. So a lot of logistics going on with this. So how was it when COVID hit? Because um, it sounds like Tiger was a well-oiled machine. It, not to say it isn't now, but it must have been quite a challenge to kind of adapt. Yeah. So, you know, luckily when things kind of went remote learning in the spring of 2020, we had at least six weeks of sort of structured class time and, and folks could get to know each other. So for that group, um, it was a pivot, right? It was a switch, but it yeah. wasn't as awkward because you already knew, you know, you had some interaction with your teammates. And then going into this semester and in the fall of 2020, um, well, a couple of things. One, most of the students were already used to doing this format. So it wasn't necessarily their first time in law school and doing uh, Tiger in a virtual format. Um, but, you know, it's hard to manage um, team meetings when none of that activity can happen in person. And it's the entire duration of the semester. So that's been tricky. I will say, though, the only benefit, and this goes across the board, I think, in higher ed, um, we're able to diversify the number of speakers and how we're able to source in speakers because you don't have travel time or, you know, those other sort of logistics to deal with, as long as the strict calendar time can work out. um, Generally, most people can give you 30, 45 minutes on a Zoom and hop on and and provide that. So I've had um, a better opportunity to source some more interesting guest speakers or attend lectures of guests who are like, I can't talk to just you, but I'm already giving a talk. Why don't you come to my talk? We did that in the fall with a professor out of Princeton. And it was fabulous. Like, it was like, yeah, this is even, this opened up more opportunities to hear from more people. Um, We talked about doing like hybrid touch points with the class where we would meet with a smaller group, like maybe 10 ish. Um, But then to your point on logistics, it 
becomes quite uh, onerous on the faculty to sort of manage, you know, instead of it's like 10 times 10, right? Like we've got 10 teams, we've got 10 meetings. It's, and the universities are somewhat, you know, cautious on, you know, they've got a strict format for what they're doing for in-person learning. And it feels like any other in-person opportunities with students in the building makes them like, it's a new data point for, you know, for risk, for exposure. And they're just like, well, aren't you only online? And what exactly are you, how many people and what's the guest policy at this university yeah. versus another? So once we started um, looking more carefully at the rules, <laughs> we decided to just keep everything virtual. Now, I'm curious, when the semester comes to an end, what happens with these projects? Do they end up becoming startup companies or do you find someone else to kind of hand them off to? What becomes of them? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's never really a handoff to anyone else. Like the team owns the project for the, you know, the lifetime of the project. What will happen, um, there are like probably two or three natural outcomes. The student group will sort of come to a sort of a natural sunset of it where it's like, these issues are too big. Like this is still too early. We've got to figure out like a lot of different data and the PhD student is just going to continue on his or her track and, and graduate. Um, then there are projects that are really close to like either getting a prototype or that the market need for whatever that solution is, is so great that the MBA and PhD students um, agree to continue working on it and sort of have the JD student on standby for consultation as needed. Um, and we've had success with students when they graduate that the PhD student literally starts a company based on the sort of tiger project and they continue to kind of slowly move, move on and move beyond. Um, I don't, know if we've had any like immediate like you finish tiger and you exit for some significant successful amount i don't think we've ever had that sometimes the phd person might continue um in a career in academia and then it just becomes part of their lab right so it sort of rolls on to their future graduate students we don't have as many of those but um there have been a few now, you mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast um, about an AI project that, you know, a group was working on. Are there any other projects you can share with us that, that the teams are working on? Yeah, so we've got that. We had an interesting project in the fall with an Emory physician um, who was working on a device to protect dentists against COVID. Oh, cool. Um, and he had some prior, like, you know, entrepreneurial experiences before coming to the university. So he was great to work with because he had a lot of ideas, but he's still a physician for Emory. So not a lot of bandwidth. So it was great where he could give the students very specific instructions on how to scope out what he needed to look at. So that was a cool project. Um, i trying to think of any others that are particularly interesting. We've got one with drone technology. Um, I was talking to students about this week that's looking at it more in ways that we don't want to look at drone technology, like <laughs> in terms of helping law enforcement and, and more using drones to help more policing. And 
it's interesting. I was like, I don't know. And they were like, yeah, we're totally on it. I was like, it's got other issues outside of IP. And, um, and they were jazzed about it because part of it, it would hit at some privacy issues, but then the drone regulation sort of um, framework is fairly complicated. And they were doing a ton of research or had produced a, a like a memo essentially on how the intricacies of that is in, in terms of from a liability perspective, you know, the manufacturers versus the pilots versus the end user. Um, so that's one of the interesting benefits, right? Like when you actually think about here's some tech, but when you execute this in a marketplace, it then introduces all of the actual folks who touch and and can concern the technology, which then changes your scope in terms of how the legal um, framework would be addressed, right? So liability for the manufacturers, maybe not, maybe yes. Um, the regulatory framework is set up rather uniquely for drones. And then how much information should you pass on to your customer if they're buying this device or they're hiring you to do this work, where do they fit into that paradigm? So that was one of the interesting uh, projects this semester where it really took them down a different path. And we haven't, we've not had a fourth amendment <laughs> issue <laughs> as a legal project and anything I've done so far. Yeah. So that was interesting. So Nicole, I think that's a great segue to ask you, um, do you have any thoughts on how we can improve equity and innovation for women and other historically underrepresented groups? Yeah, so that topic has been discussed quite a bit um, in 2020 and continues to be top of mind 2021. And, you know, for me, it saddens me that we're still having that conversation. I remember vividly, you know, when I was in undergrad, graduating in the 90s, entering the workforce, that it was top of mind and, you know, you'd have diversity. That's when you started seeing diversity um, consultants and, and folks, um, chief diversity officers and people focused on um, diversifying the workforce. And we're still talking about it. So, you know, I think until we get serious about dismantling some of the systemic barriers, we're not going to see the, the statistics change. And, you know, as a person of color, woman of color, um, I don't think it's our job to necessarily be the people doing the work because if it were up to us, we wouldn't have these disparities. <laughs> so I think until we really deal with some of the systemic racist, you know, policies and structural barriers, we're, we're not going to see much happening. I am encouraged that there's a lot more data. Um, you know, there's some reports, um, coming out. The patent office will be naming a new director soon. The Biden administration, you know, seems keen to really addressing some structural issues and they are supportive of getting more equitable government players and, and thinking about equity and, and inclusion in their, in their administration. And I think corporate players are also um, stepping up in ways that I haven't seen before. And that's really helpful. Um, so I'm encouraged by that. But, you know, I, I am frustrated and it, and it is sad that we are still having this conversation in 2021. But, you know, 
I don't want to sort of dive into a hole of depression. About <laughs> it. So I'm going to, you know, remain hopeful and cautiously optimistic that we are finally seeing some interesting traction and movement. I'm very encouraged by the young people because I think once you get this sort of older generation out of some of these key powerful leadership roles, I think the young people coming behind look very differently at these issues and are very much more a uh, group of folks who believe in, in gender and racial equity and inclusion. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm curious if you have a thought. Um, the new general counsel of Coca-Cola came out the last two weeks with um, a policy of really putting pressure on law firms to make a change. Because I agree with you, um, being a female, the the numbers on equity and um, diversity have remained the same my entire career. I've been practicing 28 years and there's been zero or very little movement and his policy of saying, hey, look, you know, law firms, if you don't make some active change, you're going to have your bills reduced by 30 percent. You know, is it you know, I think maybe his thinking is it's going to take something like that to really get law firms to take it seriously. Do you have a thought on that? Yeah. You know, I think that he um, I applaud him for for putting it out there because it's getting a lot of uh, traction. Definitely. I think that's one way to. Um, motivate law firms, right? You know, you get at their bottom line in terms of their, um, what they can collect from the company. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see six months from now if they actually have to do that. I don't know if he's willing to share <laughs> what has happened since he put out the mandate in late January or early February. Um, what I would love to see are other in-house departments adopt a similar strategy, right? So Coke is just one, you know, legal service, um, you know, user of legal services. So what happens if you get Coke and GM and Apple and Google and everybody to sort of adopt a similar expectation of their outside counsel? What will happen if the companies who adopt that framework are then actually holding their outside counsel accountable and bills are cut. Or, you know, I remember years ago, there was sort of a pledge among in-house um, counsel to hire uh, firms with more diverse, like to hire women-owned firms and, and uh, people of color-owned law firms. And I don't know where that sits, but I do remember that. And people did that for a while and then they stopped, right? So um, what happens when... Um, Coke gets a new general counsel because they will. Um, <laughs> will that policy stick or not? Yeah. So I have a lot of questions, but I think in the short term, great. And would love to see others adopt something similar. Yeah, the next few months on that front are going to be very interesting to watch. I completely agree with you on that. So, Nicole, I generally like to end my podcast by asking my guests if they could have three wishes or a vision realized. And generally, it's for someone in a tech transfer office. But since you run the Tiger program, I'm going to ask you this question with respect to the Tiger program. What would that be? All right. This is good. So I would love to get some grant money. So whoever's listening to your podcast, that would be my first big wish. Um, we could do some interesting things. But, you know, to scale and to um, have more reach or different uh, reach to the community, K through 12 education, undergraduate education, touch different entrepreneurs, more entrepreneurs of color. 
I need some money. So one would be money. Um, money for the tiger program. Two, um, you know, we're looking at some things um, at Emory Law, and, and I know other law schools are looking at some curriculum changes and things about social justice and and uh, adding some uh, courses to get students to be more um, more empathetic. Uh, I don't know, just better advocates for their clients. So I think it would be great to move that movement a little bit faster. Like, I think we're moving a little slow at Emory. I wish we would move a little faster. So that would be, that would be sort of my injunctive type of <laughs> wish rather than just getting some money. I don't know if I have a third. I think if I get to one and two, just, you know, the stamina and the <laughs> the energy to sort of execute on that would probably be my third wish to just make sure I stay healthy. You know, I'm hoping just from a big, big, big picture um, perspective that we can get beyond the virus. Right. So um, I don't think COVID is going away. I mean, I, I know others have said this, I'm not new to say that, but you know, I hear people like, well, when the virus is done, like it's not going to be done, but I think when we get to a point where we can live with the virus and not have the death toll that we've seen and the hospitalization toll. Um, I'm anxious to get to that. So that would be my third wish. Well, I certainly hope that people listening to this podcast will help you realize your first two wishes because I think it's a great program. And and I would be great if we could see some some more programs like it in the future. Well, Nicole, I can't thank you enough for all your time and insights today. It's been an absolute pleasure for any of our listeners who want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? So, yeah, so I'm on the Emory Law website, nicole.n.morris at emory.edu. Um, Twitter, um, Nicole N. Morris 3. Um, and, yeah, those are the two places I tend to hang out the most in my email inbox <laughs> on Twitter when I can. <laughs> great. Well, thanks so much again, Nicole. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.